This is an extract from Rick Stroud's book, Kidnap in Crete. The two men sat down next to the warmth of the fire in the hut, trying to dry off. There were some boys from nearby Enogia at the sheepfold, and one of them, the boy whose father had been executed, began playing with the rifles, which included Lee Firma's captured German Mauser. The gun could be loaded by hand or with a five-round clip, and the youngster tried both methods. After a while, he got bored and left the rifle loaded with the safety catch off. Several of the disgruntled shepherds appeared with the urgent news that 300 German soldiers had appeared and were searching all the houses in the area. They warned that it was only a matter of minutes before they arrived. Lee Firmer, who was very excitable, ordered everyone in the hideout to pack up and leave. He grasped the Mauser, swinging it round with his finger on the trigger and the weapon fired. To be continued towards the end of this episode. This episode can be described as a boy's own war story. It's a true story from World War II, where hijinks and daring do are mixed in with errors of judgment and tragedy. Welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton. Today I'm going to examine an iconic event from World War II, carried out by Greek and British members of the Special Operations Executive, the SOE. To help me, I'm joined by Rick Stroud. Rick, a director of film and television, has also published a number of books, mostly within the military sphere. His latest, Lonely Courage, is the true story of the SOE heroines from World War II. As some of you know, we published our own episode on 20th century heroines last year, episode 11. In 2014, Rick published Kidnapping Crete, the true story of the abduction of a Nazi general. This is our subject today. Rick, welcome to Bloody Violent History. Thank you. My first question before we dive into the story of the kidnapping is how did Crete end up being occupied by the Nazis in May 1941? Well, as you, as you and everybody may know, there was a big war going on in the Western Desert, uh, fought by the British, and later by, they were joined by the Americans. The Germans were winning that war, and they thought that if they invaded Crete, which was just to the north of the North African coast. It would act as a giant sort of supply depot. They could bring their troops there, they could bring supplies there, they could hang out there. It would give them some control over the, over the, over the Mediterranean. And so they planned what was the biggest airborne assault in, in the history of the world up to that point. And I think since that point, it was a gigantic assault with these highly trained German parachute troopers. The Fallschirmjäger. The Fallschirmjäger, who were pretty um, uh, ruthless. And the British British on Crete weren't very well organised. They were led by a man called General Freiburg, who was a very brave man who'd run the VC. He was a a New Zealander. But he was obsessed with the thought that if, if an invasion came to Crete, it would come from the sea. And all his thinking was out to sea to the north looking for an invasion force, an, an invasion force that never came because the, the real invasion force came from the air. Right. Uh, and w- when it arrived, the, uh, um, the, 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 the paratroopers jumped out of their aeroplanes, gliders landed. It was a very chaotic landing because the, the Crete 
landscape isn't built for glider landings, and it's not really built for parachute landings because it's very very rocky, and you, you, you know you don't as a parachutist you don't want to land on rocks and break your leg and all the rest of it. And they were met by the most incredible uh, resistance from the Cretan, the very very brave Cretan people, all of whom turned out bishops, school children, uh, wives, old ladies in old black ladies. dresses. Old ladies in black dresses carrying whatever they could, which ranged from old, you know, sort of 18th century blunderbusses to, to, to axes that they had, you know, to do the chopping of the wood in their house. And by the end of the first day, um, the invasion had gone so badly that the Germans thought, this isn't going to work, and we, we will pull out. And they were on the verge of pulling out when the, the commander said, uh, we, we, we'll have one more go at this, and he sent in heavy lift aeroplanes to Malamy Air, Airfield on the second day of the invasion to see how quickly and whether it was possible to land, unload, and take off. And the pilot who tried this out landed, took off under fire, and there followed uh, um, a, 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 a fleet of, uh, of um, heavy lift aircraft which were landing, unloading, and taking off in 90 seconds. And that swung the battle, and our, and our uh, commander, General Freiburg, even though he, he could almost see and he certainly heard about this um, invasion, refused to traverse guns that he had pointing out to sea to point at the airfield. He could have just traversed left and, 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 and sort of shot up the aeroplanes that were landing. He didn't. And, of course, the Germans, as they, as they built their force up on that second day, they acquired a huge psychological... Um, advantage because everybody thought, oh, we will never beat them, and they, they already had a, a reputation for being unbeaten. And so, the, really, uh, uh, by the end of the second day, the battle was lost. The, the British army ended up. I mean, it's sad to say, but the British army ended up in a rout. Uh, they, they, most of them went to the south coast and um, were taken off by by the Royal Navy after. Ten days. At the end of the, of the ten days, the Germans owned the island, and what they immediately did uh, was to say, "This is very unfair. The, the civilian population shouldn't have fought us. This is um, illegal." And so they um, they took reprisals and they they destroyed two villages, one called Candanos and the other called Candamari. And in both places, they took the civilian population, separated the women and children from the men took the men into a, 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 a sort of orchard and shot them in both, both villages. And the, this is recorded by a, a man called Peter Weichsler, who was a, a German war photographer, and he was loaded up into one of the lorries that, that was going to destroy these villages and took shots of, of, the, of the reprisals and of the executions. And he later testified at the Nuremberg War Trials, and, and his testimony was critical in causing the, uh, the, the people involved to be found guilty of a, of a war crime. So that's, that's why Crete was uh, under German control, and that's, that is why the, the Cretan people, who are very, very, very fierce, tough lot... I mean, I'll just tell you a quick story that when I was writing the book, one of the people I met was a guy called Costas Mamalakis, who is the curator of the, or he was the curator of the historical museum in Crete, and his uncle was the chief Cretan kidnapper. He was actually in the car when the general was kidnapped, and, and Costas was really kind to me and nice, and he entertained me quite a lot in his flat, which was full of ordnance. There were hand grenades, 25-pounder shells, there was a 
there was a Vickers machine gun with, with I think, eight um, strings of ammunition, eight belts of ammunition. And I said, why? I said, Costas, why? I said, obviously, this has all been decommissioned. He said, no, this is all live ammunition. <laughs> and he had, he had the, you know, submachine guns. I said, well, why do you have to have all this uh, unexploded ordnance? I said, he said, well, first of all, he said, if, if my flap caught fire, I'd ring the fire brigade and tell them to evacuate the area because it would blow up. He said, but my great-grandfather had to fight. My grandfather had to fight. My father had to fight, and the way things are going, it looks as though I might have to fight, and this ammunition and these weapons will be very useful, and that is, it's sort of defined in some way, the, the Cretan spirit. They are used to being invaded, they are used to resisting the invaders. Yes. So what the Germans had done had, was to set up a sort of melting pot of resistance and hatred towards them. And So the reprisals... Um, didn't put a stop to the Cretans' Not at uh, activity. All, no. It actually, it actually sort of it, it, concentrated their minds. It even concentrated more. their minds and made them even more determined to be as unpleasant to the Germans as they as they possibly could be. And the the last bit of this that leads us um, into the capture of General Kreiper is that that one of the generals who was put in charge of of the island. Now there were two or three, and I think he was the second. Uh, was a guy called Muller, General Muller, and he was called the Butcher of Crete, and he was ruthless in uh, his use of reprisals against any guerrilla activities, and he was ruthless in his ability um, to command that villages be villages that he thought were uh, uh, working against him to be destroyed, and he had people tortured and, and interrogated in a terrible way. So, sort of just going on from there, what Patrick Lee Fermer, who was in the Special Operations Executive, he was a sort of buccaneer soldier, as all the SOE were. And central to the story. And central to the story, but not the centre of the story, because in my view, Lee Fermer and Paddy Moss, who was his um, second-in-command, are important, but they're not as important as the Cretan resistance, the Andates, as they're called. But he said, let's let's capture, uh, for sort of propaganda purposes... General Muller from his headquarters on Crete. And that was the sort of start of the idea. And the idea was to, to capture him, not to kill him, to use the minimum amount of force, but to get him off the island and therefore to show uh, that the Germans could be uh, humiliated and the Cretans would be given a great morale boost. And the Cretans would be given a great morale boost. Yes, No, they certainly didn't want to kill him. What they And they... W- they wanted to try and make it appear that the Cretans had had no part in the kidnap. Yeah. And the kidnap story sort of starts in uh, Christmas in 1943. Just before we start, yeah, yeah, I fine. just want to run through the, the people just before we oh, get yes. into the story, in case uh, they'll no doubt crop up in the, in, in the um, story as we go along. But the Germans, we've got to, uh, these various generals, Muller, and then he, he has to leave, and this Heinrich Kreiper... General Kreiper. General Kreiper. General Kreiper takes over. Um, and then there are... Um, and then Muller actually comes back after he's kidnapped and, and lays into the Cretan people yes. um, as revenge. Then we've got the British, Major Paddy Liefermer, and his two IC Captain William Stanley Moss. Billy uh, Stanley Moss. I said Paddy earlier. It's Billy Stanley Billy, Moss. Billy, right. And they were in the SOE, Special Operations Executive, and also linked to the ISLD? The yes. I mean, there is a big difference between, there, between the SOE and the ISLD. And the ISLD 
is an acronym for the Inter-Services Liaison Department, which is a meaningless, deliberately meaningless acronym. And the, and the difference between the two, very, very simply, is that the SOE like to blow things up and to capture people and kill people. The ISLD, the Inter-Services Liaison Department, were much more sophisticated, and what they wanted to do was accumulate intelligence, masses and masses of intelligence that could be then sent to general headquarters. So they'd spend ages, uh, uh, you know, watching ports and making little drawings that to, just to get the intelligence. And uh, Force 133? Force 133 is, is a, I think it's a special boat service force, which I, it doesn't really play a part in the end. Okay. And then so, um, the, there are some other Brits who were sort of involved as, as a sideline, uh, Jan or Zan Fielding, Sandy Rendell and John Pendlebury. Right, I mean, the, um, uh, Rendell was, a, was on the island. He was a radio operator. He, he operated a radio on the island and was very, very important. Pendlebury was an archaeologist who knew more about Crete uh, than almost anybody. And before the war, he had helped to organise Cretan resistance groups against the day when the Germans might invade. He spoke, I mean, he was fluent Greek. He was more Cretan than the Cretans. He was a much-loved figure, and he, he would walk the island. He, he worked for the um, British Archaeological School on Crete. Um, and when the, when the invasion started, he was, all, he was all set to sort of take over and run the resistance uh, as he'd organised it in, before the war. But unfortunately, I think it was on the second day of the battle, he was killed and taken off the picture. So he, so he never played a part in it. But nobody really knew where he was buried. And he, he had one eye, and the Germans were always looking for a corpse with a glass eye to try and... But he, his, his, his role in, it, in the battles for Crete were... And in the, the set-up. Well, in the yeah. set-up, but, but, but he was dead by the time... Uh, and he, so he, it is the story of him with his glass eye that he would leave it somewhere to say that he was on a mission or something. Something like that, yeah, yes. He would he'd leave, leave it on his desk. On, he'd leave the eye on his desk. <laughs> I'm and keeping an eye on you. Yes. Yeah. OK, well, uh, and then the Greeks, as you say, the most important part. Um, the two names I've gotten, obviously others will come out in the story, Giorgio Tariakis and Emmanuel Paterakis. I probably... Paterakis. Paterakis. Yes. The, the, the main Cretan um, organisers of the kidnap were Manolis Paterakis... And he's the uncle of the guy I told you about, who's the curator of the Historical Museum. And his second-in-command is Georgios Tirakis. There are a hell of a lot of other Cretans involved. They've all got very complicated names, but the, the two to, to bear in mind are Georgios and um, Manolis, because they, 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 are the, they, were, they were in command and they were telling people what to do, etc., etc. And as I said, um, Manolis was in the car after they'd captured the general. Great. OK, let's get into the story. <laughs> so strap on your boy's own helmet and <laughs> flak here we jackets. go. Your flak jackets. Yeah. I mean, it starts um, at Christmas 1943 in a house in Cairo called Tara when there are three naked men sitting in a bathroom. And one of the naked men is drawing in the steam on the tiles on the wall and he's called Zan Smiley. And he's the son of a, of a baronet. And a, and a member of the SOE, and, a, and, a, and like all the SOE on Crete and, and in and Cairo, a renegade. The second naked man is, is Patrick Paddy Lee Firmer, 
who I've described as a handsome name-dropping uh, buccaneering adventurer. And, and what, he, what he liked was to exaggerate... I mean, he was a little bit like Boris Johnson. Everything, he, he was at the centre of everything that he, that he took part in. And then the other guy was, was William Stan, Stanley Moss, called Billy Moss, who's been described as a devilishly languid Coldstream Guards officer. And what they're doing, what Zan Smiling is trying to do... So is Zan Smiling, because there's a Zan Fielding. There's Zan Fielding. Oh, well. someone else. OK, yeah, so this yeah. is Zan Smiling. And, yeah, and right. Zan, just, I, I understand your confusion. I, I share it. Zan... Fielding, I mean, Zan Fielding and Zan Smiley both lived in Tara and both operated in, in Greece and in, in North Africa. But Smiley is drawing on the wall, on the tiles, a, 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 a sort of diagram to show how you, how you ambush a car or, or a group of men. And, and he, he, he's doing that because Lee Firmer, Paddy Lee Firmer, who I always refer to as Lee Firmer, uh, wants to know how it's done because he has this plan to capture... General uh, Muller, the butcher of Crete. Where all this is happening is in a house called Tara, uh, and it it was it had been rented by Billy Stanley Moss, who was a uh, quite quite rich, and it was a very very eccentric place. It was run by um, Billy Moss's girlfriend, who was a Polish princess called Sophie, and she'd arrived wearing um, carrying marmosettes and Pixie a dog. Um, and and she, she she sort of ran this house. It had a butler. It had a ballroom. It had it had um, crystal chandeliers, uh, and it was full of of sort of very very wild, generally upper middle class young young men, and they'd do things like um, they'd sh- they'd have massive parties. Sophie said that in Poland they had this drink and they tried to make the drink using industrial alcohol, which they mixed in the bath and oh, sort of pochin. Sort of pochin. They, uh, and somebody drank it and collapsed, and so they couldn't couldn't use it. They mixed uh, prunes with it. Oh. Um, they had bullfighting. The Lee Firmer once fell asleep on a sofa with a cigarette. The sofa caught fire. They threw it out of the window. They they got people to shoot out the lights of the of the chandeliers. One Christmas they had uh, they they cooked a turkey using benzedrine. So when they were not on on in the field, they were absolutely caning it. They were running running wild and. Well, had, David Sterling was and the SAS lot in there, no, or was that different? No, 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 no. Sterling was in the Sterling was in the um, desert, and 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 really nothing nothing to do with the with the SOE. I mean, I, I, he knew them, but he didn't play any part in. And the people who were um, were in this uh, uh, house tower included that guy called um, Billy McLean, and Fielding. They 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 had a little brass pl- plaque made up, which, which which with imaginary names screwed to the door of the house. Which and they, one of them was called uh, Sir Eustace Rapier, and there was a la- the, another man they called Lord Rakehold, which was Patrick Lee Firmer. Sounds very um, Blackadder. It's very Lord, black, Lord it's, Flashart. It's yeah. Lord Flashart, and um, Lee Moss was called um, Jack Jargon, and and Sophie herself was called. Madame Kayat, and she and the legend about Madame Kayat was that she was always upstairs, invisible to everybody, enjoying very poor health. <laughs> and the butler would sort of run this thing. Um, so, th- so they've so so they've got this plan, which which Lee Firmer is going to um, present to to GHQ to the people who are, who sort of are in charge of him, and get permission to fly to Crete, and kidnap um, General Muller. Unbeknownst to him. Uh, General Muller is replaced by General Kriper, 
And now General Kripe is a nice man. He's a classicist. He's won a Knight's Cross for bravery, and he's been fighting on the Eastern Front, which I think everybody interested in, 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 in all sorts of bloody warfare and know was a pretty awful place to be. And they said, General, we're going to give you a holiday. We're going to send you to Crete. It's full of illiterate peasants. It's, it's a cushy number. They're completely disorganised. You'll, ha- you'll have a lovely time. You can stay in the Villa Ariadne. You'll have your lovely headquarters just down the road in Arcanis. It's full of... It's warm. It's, you can drink the wine and you'll, you'll have a nice time and it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a rest for you. So he flies in on this great uh, German aeroplane waiting on the tarmac. It's a beautiful, top-of-the-range for that time, Opal motor car with pennant, metal pennants on its, uh, on its mudguards, people saluting, doors open, he gets into it, and it's, it is beautifully hot, and you can smell the lovely scents, and he's driven uh, to the Villa Ariadne. And what he doesn't realise is that he's just stepped into a trap that's going to cost him his reputation, ruin his career, and nearly kill him. And what he also doesn't realise is that all these lovely uh, peasants who are so disorganised, in his view, uh, are watching him every inch of the way. And when he gets to the Villa Ariadne, he's given a lovely cup of coffee by a lovely woman. And he thinks, oh, that's nice, and this is so civilised, and he's a classicist, so he can, he, the Villa Ariadne is full of classical... It was the headquarters, wasn't it, previously, for the archaeological... For the archaeological school in, yeah. on, on Crete mm. at... Um, Right, so, so it, and it, Arthur Evans, you know, it's, it's, so it couldn't be a better place. So as he's drinking his coffee, he thinks this is the life, and of course he doesn't realise that the lovely young woman who gave him the coffee is also an, uh, uh, working for the underground, and that again every move he makes is being um, reported. So this is rather a blow to um, uh, to Lee to Lee Furman to find out that um, that his plan to capture the general. Has been has been sort of subverted by the fact that the general isn't there anymore. It's a completely different general. Nothing daunted, um, he 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 represents the plan and says, you know, it doesn't really matter whether it's Muller or Kreiper or whatever. We should just capture a German general. It'll be a big uh, propaganda coup for us. And he and there were one or two senior officers who said, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be doing this. And they were worried about reprisals. And they well. were worried about reprisals. Yeah. And 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 indeed, I mean, if if you if you look at Lee Fermer's, um archive in the National Library of Scotland, he's always writing to people saying there were no reprisals, you know, we got away with it. And, it, and of course, there were reprisals, and we'll probably talk about those as, um, as we go on. And just going back for a second, I mean, after the Germans had won the Battle of Crete, the, the British inserted uh, the, the SOE op- operatives uh, and ISLD operatives to, 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 to sort of... Um, send information out as to what was going on, because otherwise Crete had turned into a sort of um, a black hole. You know, you, no, nobody knew, really knew what was going on there. Anyway, the, um, and, the, and, the res- and the res- all of the time between the, the invasion and the, and the kidnap, the, the resistance is fighting back. So if we go back to Cairo, we're back in Cairo in 1944, the bathroom plan has been approved, and um, Patrick Lee Firm has been, is going to be running it, and he recruits Manolis Patrakis. Okay, and uh, they they then come along at this point. Yeah. They come along at this point, and um, are they, Where are they then? They're in Egypt, are they? They're in Cairo. Right. They're, they're in Cairo. Um, part of the SOE. 
so then they were never officially part of the SOE, but because they were so important, they worked for the SOE. Uh, and Lee Fermer knew that they were extremely important um, to him. And he, he himself had been on Crete before. I mean, it's not, it's not the first time. So, so he, knew, he knew all these people. And in, in, uh, at the House of Tara, Tara they, 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 they make lists of what they want. And this is where it really becomes boy's own paper, because amongst the things that they need are not, are not only maps, pistols, bombs, they're koshis, knuckle dusters, telescopic sights, silences, benzodrine tablets, knockout drops, suicide pills. They even, at one point, thought of taking mines, anti-personnel mines, disguised as camel dung, but they were too heavy to carry. And they have a big party on the night that they're going to set off. And it's all, the, the, the Greeks aren't there, but, but the, um, and the Cretans aren't there, but, the, but the, the inhabitants of Tara are. And one of the inhabitants, a woman, said uh, there would be a big party and a car would call and those who were going to be dropped into enemy territory left just like that, without a goodbye, without anything. We never allowed ourselves to be anxious about them. We believed that to be anxious was to accept the possibility of something dreadful happening to them. So they have the party presents given. I think Lee Fermer gets a, a, a present of the complete works of Shakespeare. And they, and they set off and they fly to Italy where they, where they take off for Crete. Have they done their training at this stage? Yes, they have. Um, Lee Fermer has trained as a parachutist and got his wings. I don't think Moss ever got his wings, but he liked the fact that he was jumping untrained. I mean, that's sort of loony, loony business that they were in. The plane, so so they're finding on the plane with all the equipment. They've got these great canisters full of equipment. They're flying over the drop zone on Crete, and Lee Firmer is the first to jump. And the idea is that he will jump, establish contact with the uh, um, resistance on the immediately on the ground, flash the torch, saying it's all right, and the others will jump. But the weather changes, so Lee Firmer jumps, and he and he's in exactly the right place. He lands beautifully. There's cheering from the Cretans. They all call him Livermore. Livermore, Livermore. And they, it's, it's all wonderful. But he, the, 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 the clouds have sort of come in. He can't signal. And the, and it, they, the plane pilot consider it, considers it too dangerous to drop the other, the other, the other members of the team and, and the equipment. And so after circling for about an hour, the plane flies off and leaves Lee Firma on the ground uh, to, to wait for the, for, for the arrival of the others. And he spends the next two months sitting in, in various caves on the island, really having a good time. He's drinking. Um, he's, he, 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 growing he, his beard. Growing his beard. No, he doesn't grow his, he doesn't grow his beard, actually. But he, yeah. but, he, but he drinks and he writes endless um, messages to the Royal Air Force telling them how incompetent they are. And, not. <laughs> and eventually it's decided that the, that the rest of the party will be inserted by, uh, by la- motor launch on the south coast of, um, of Crete. Uh, and um, on the appointed night, Lee Firmer's waiting. The Cre- the, there's, a, there's a reception committee waiting. They hear the launch. <coughs> the launch comes in. And o- on the launch is, uh, is Moss, the Cretans, and a load, of other Gre- uh, a load of other Cretans who Moss can't really read. He thinks they're all sheep rustlers. He, doesn't, he, he, he's got, he can't speak Greek. He doesn't know what they're saying. And he just misinterprets the, the, the whole thing. In fact, that a lot of them are very important members of the resistance and right. people that he... He thinks they're just a mob. He thinks up. they're just a mob. And 
when, as they go ashore, um, the first person he meets is a man who looks as though he's come, you know, out of Brideshead revisited, wearing a suit. He, he's, a, he's a Creason who can't, can't understand anything that Moss is saying. And then another man comes up who's dressed in rags and stinks. And he says, hello, old boy. Um, Paddy will be along in a minute. I, I haven't washed for six months. Uh, man of the people, that's me. And that is Rendell, who, who we saw. Sandy Rendell. Sandy, who, yeah. who we wrote. And then... Down the beach comes Patrick Lee Fermer wearing a maroon cummerbund. He's got an ivory-handled pistol in his belt, a dagger in his belt, a beautiful brocaded waistcoat. And he says, hello, hello, old boy. And um, he said, I, what I want... He said, look at the way I'm dressed. He said, I, think, I want the locals to think of me as a, as a sort of duke. <laughs> and he does. And so there's a bit of him that's living a fantasy. Yeah, they all are. They all are, yeah. But I mean, I think Lee Firm are more all than... All the Brits, more, I mean, yeah. all, the, all the Brits, definitely. Mm. And, and, and of course, some of them are very, very serious and, and very clever. And they're, they're all people who didn't want to get involved in the army drilling and mm. being bossed around. They, they, they wanted to be freelance. And that's really what a lot of the SOE in all its areas was, was freelance. And we've, I mean, in other podcasts, we've talked about the sort of puritanical nature of the Brits, you know. We live on an island and we like going out and causing trouble, and whether it's Spanish galleons or whatever. And so there is, there's certainly a a proportion of the population who who adopt this role very happily. Yeah. And the thing is, in the Second World War, we had a man at the top who loved it as well. Churchill. Churchill. I mean, he was restrained by his... Um, military men, but he he loved these people um, because he felt that's what he was like, and he was from the Boer War, wasn't he? And he was, and and I think, I don't know whether it was he who um, uh, coined the phrase, but the SOE was called the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Yes, Butcher and Bolt. Butcher and Bolt. Yeah. Um, And and it was was quite boys in paper. Um, An important person that we haven't mentioned so far is a guy called Mickey Akumianakis, who is the Son of the uh, curator of the um, the caretaker of the of the Villa Ariadne, but Mickey, so Mickey lives next door to the Villa Ariadne, which is where they're proposing to 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 grab the general from. They think that we'll we'll, we'll storm the place, grab him, and uh, whisk him away. And uh, Lee Fermer goes with Akumianakis, Mickey, to his house, and and. Lee Fermer looks very Greek. I mean, when he's when he's you know moving among the Germans, he's tried his luck all the time. He would walk into places where there were German soldiers and give them cigarettes and talk to them, and they never sort of tumbled who he was. But he liked he pushed it. He pushed his luck all the time. Anyway, he and Mickey go to go to the Villa Ariadne to to Mickey's house and they look at it, and and Lee Fermer sees that it's surrounded by endless fences of barbed wire, electrical fences, machine gun. It's heavily, you know, it's the, it's the head of the German army on Crete. It's heavily defended, and it's not a place that you're going to just be able to storm in and rush out. If they try it, it would be a, it would just be a sort of suicide. Yeah, job. they didn't. I mean, they only had small arms, didn't they? They only had small arms. I mean, they must. They had. They would have hand grenades, but I mean, it, it just it just wasn't going to work. So they decide instead that they will um, try and find another place to capture the general, and they know from. Mickey's sister, who, we, who was a woman who gave the general the coffee when he first arrived, that um, that he has this routine of he goes to the he lives in the Villa Ariadne. He goes to his headquarters at Arcanis, which is about I can't remember exactly, but it's about twenty kilometres down the road, maybe a bit further. Is it beyond Heraklion or, or no? No, on it's the south, way to 
No, it's not on the way to Rackland. It's it's south. It's going it's going south into into the island. It's a nice it's a nice little um, town. But he, his routine is he gets up. He 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 goes to the to the um, headquarters. He comes back for his lunch. He then goes back to the headquarters. He'll have maybe have dinner in the headquarters or have dinner at, back at the villa area. But he will spend some part of the evening with his officers in the mess. And, and, and on the road between uh, the Villa Ariadne and Arcanes, there is a crossroads, which doesn't exist anymore. But it's, a, it's not a crossroads. It's a, it's a sort of steep bend in the road where the car will have to slow down. And they th- they're walking... The, the, Mickey and Paddy, Patrick Lee Fermer, are, are, are walking along, looking at this, and they think this is the perfect place to... Uh, stage the kidnap and as they're walking the car itself with the general in it drives by and, ca- uh, and for an instant Lee Fermer and Kreiper look at each other not uh, Kreiper not realising that the, he's looking at his kidnappers and I think it's Lee Fermer who waves at him in a, in a sort of jovial way and he, Kreiper thinks oh friendly creeps and peasants <laughs> totally disorganised <laughs> Mickey's sister chats up the driver of the car. She finds out exactly uh, his routine when when he's going, you know, where where he'll go and um, where he'll be. And he doesn't have much. Uh, they don't vary the routine, so they're not taking any great precautions. They're not taking any great precautions. Although the general does think. I mean, he just doesn't even have an outrider, does he? No, or, no. He's, he's, uh, he just gets in the car and, and drives back. He he does think. Oh, um, it's, this is important for the, for the actual moment of the, of the um, kidnap. He does think that uh, if he's going to, if there anything were to happen to him, it would be at that slowed, slowing down place. And just before the kidnap happens, he gives orders that he'd like a roadblock to be put there, just to check out things. But that, but that doesn't happen. But you'll see see how that affects him. Meanwhile, Lee Fermer is is working with the with the. Um, I mean, this is sort of canter through, but some, he's working with the underground. He's got a group of men who are going to be be the sort of protection squad. He's got twelve men who will be the uh, the actual kidnap um, team. It's very difficult to hide these men and to feed them because there's a huge um, food shortage on Crete. And in the end, he, he gets he gets two things happen. One is he gets a letter that says. Uh, from some, it's quite obscure, Cretan organisation saying, who are communists, I think, saying, you mustn't do this, there'll be reprisals, or stop it. And they're all getting, they're all, they've all been waiting quite a long they're time. They're getting tense. Yeah. They're getting tense, the pressure's building up on them, and they, Lee Fermer thinks, okay, may, maybe we should call it off, but the Cretans who are, want to do it are gung ho, and they say, call it off at your peril, we're here, we're going to do, do it. it anyway. <laughs> do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. and, but one of the things that has to happen is that the protection squad, has to leave. They just can't keep them hidden any longer, and they become more of a danger. Right. So, so they're reduced to the to the twelve men, and they decide what they're going to do is that Lee Fermer and um, Moss will disguise themselves as as German um, military policemen, and that they will uh, wave down the car, and that when they when they wave down the car, that's the moment which the, at which they will grab the general and and drag him out of the car, and so. After long wait, lots of planning, getting the uniforms together, which don't look great, but will look great in the dark. But they're on for one night, and they're told, no, the general's going to change his routine, so it's, they postpone it. They've got a system of flashing torches, and at one point it was going to be bell wire, whereby 
people, an, an advance guard could see the car coming and signal to the kidnappers. A little buzz or something. little buzz. And I think in the end they, they use um, torches. But, um, but anyway, so lots of uh, hanging around, false alarms, etc., etc. But the night comes when it's on. They all go to the kidnap point and they hide in the ditches by the side of the road, leave firmer and Moss dressed, dressed for the part, and then they, they wait, a, a lorry goes by full of, and now it's pitch dark, and a lorry goes by full of German soldiers. It's a busy-ish road, so I mean, it's they, they bus- haven't got time to there's mess around. N- no, no, they haven't got time to mess around, and it does link the headquarters of the German army with Heraklion, the, 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 the general's home. You know, it's, it's a sort of, it's an important road on an island that didn't have many roads going north to south at that time. It's got lots more now. And then a, a motorcycle, a, a sidecar goes past and they wait and, the, and they begin to think, oh, it's, it's hopeless, the general's not going to come. And then they get the light flashing and the, the car's coming. So Lee Fermer and, uh, and Moss get out onto the road and they've got these paddles, I think they're called paddles, which are police things, red and white, to flag people down. They've got their hats peak caps over their, their over their eyes they they do they do look like it although moss earlier had said actually we, we i thought we looked like two sort of englishmen in the barclays running around <laughs> in the park in london anyway and moss has got a cosh in his in his um hand they flag down the car and in from inside the car the general the general kreiper can see these policemen going alt and he smiles. He thinks this is terrific. They've it's, done the. They've done what road, I wanted. Yeah. And he's winding down the window to congratulate them and be the big, big, the big, the big general. When suddenly the his door is ripped open, the driver's door is ripped open. The driver's coshed on the head by um, by Moss. Uh, the other kidnappers jump out of their their um, uh, the ditches on the side of the road. They they grab the general. They tie him up. His hat's knocked off. He, the medal. He's got his iron cross. Which he's very fond of, which got in the First World War, yes. is torn off, mm. and he's now strapped like a sort of mummy. He's slid into the back of the car on the floor. Patarakis gets in. Leaf uh, Moss is a very good driver, so he's going to drive the Opal. Lee Fermer gets into the um, into the passenger seat, and he puts the general's hat on. So he's now masquerading as the general. And in the back, the general has got these sweaty, smelly. Cretans with knives telling him to, to shut up and the car roars off and the and the driver is led off into the into the darkness and about a second after the car has gone another German lorry comes so that shows how how, how quickly they had to do it and how dangerous it was and and as if that wasn't enough the car now has to be driven by Moss through Heraklion because they're they're heading west of Heraklion to a, a village called Anoya, which is in the centre of the resistance on Crete. And they've got to get they through... D- they don't think to just go south straight away and head... No, because there's nothing there for them to... They, they can't cut through. They can't cut through. And, and also, they, they have to signal to Cairo that they've got the general in order to organise the, uh, the launch to take them off. And they, and they, right. they had no... They couldn't say... It would have been folly to say, we'll do it tomorrow night, you be there then, because they'd had no idea how long it would take them. They go to Anoya, which is, which is the centre of the resistance, and where there is a radio. And they'll use the radio to tell Kari, we've got it, we've got him, and organise the, the launch. And also to get, the, to get the BBC to transmit a message saying that, that, that on Crete, uh, a German general called Kreiper has been kidnapped and is already off the island. 
and he was kidnapped by the British, and it's nothing to do with the, with the Cretans. Although I read somewhere that the Germans realised Kripa was still on the island because the BBC messed up that yeah, message. Well, that's exactly what happened. As an aside to that, the BB, when the message reached the BBC, A, it was put in an in-tray and treated with the bureaucracy of the BBC, and in the end they refused to transmit a message that wasn't true, which is bloody annoying for the people on, you know, who'd done the kidnap. But in a way, that's good, because the BBC had this reputation for telling the truth. And so I can see why they did that. But, it, but if you've, you've got a car full of Cretans and, and, a, and a kidnapped German, you want as much help from the outside world as possible. So Lee Fermer is now driving through, these, through the um, checkpoints, and, the, and, the, and the, the first one they get to is, is the general's, um, the Villa Ariadne, where they're waiting for him. And they just flash the lights and go storming past, and they all salute. <laughs> and then they get to actual checkpoints, and Moss's technique is to slow the car down but not slow it down. And remember, it's got these very distinctive um, pennants on the, on the mudguards, and Lee Fermer shouts... Which, which, which designate his rank. Which designate his rank. I mean, everybody would know that that car was Kripa's car. Mm. I mean, every soldier on the island would know that. And so Moss would slow down to each as each checkpoint came up, and uh, Lee Fermer would shout out of the, out of the window, Genolswagen, Genolswagen, with great authority. And the, and the Germans all opened the thing and <laughs> snapped to attention, saluting like crazy. And they got through, and, and what you have to remember is that driving through Heraklion, this is a garrison town, it was a night, they, a lot of soldiers had a night off, it was a cinema night, so it's absolutely heaving with off-duty soldiers, and they're having to drive the car slowly oh. through, through, um, through these men, and they do it, and, and, and they just rely on the German sort of instinctive uh, need to bow to, to, to authority. Even though there were clearly three smelly peasants Even though there on were the back seat. But remember, it's, it is dark, so, mm. you know, they've... Genolswagen, um, Genolswagen, and then they get to the west gate, of, which is the main gate out of Heraklion, and that's got some really heavy duty. It's got big concrete slalom things to slow the car. You know, you can't just drive straight through it. It's got searchlights, and it's got um, pretty heavy-duty soldiers guarding it. Moss slows the car down. He's got the searchlight hitting him in the eyes. Lee Fermer goes, Genolswagen, Genolswagen. And, and it looks as though they're not going to open the, um, open the, uh, open the barrier. And, at the, and so they think, well, what, what, if this, what they plan to do is if, if this happened, we will reverse out of it. We will take the, the general into the back streets of, um, of Heraklion and God knows what will go on, but we'll probably all be killed. But at the very last minute... The, the, the barrier is opened and the car zooms through and they're all hysterical with relief and smoking cigarettes. And they let the general sit up and, um, and, they, and he's still got a knife at his throat and, he, and they say, just if you don't cooperate with us, it'll be, it'll be the end of you. So do, do what you're told, general. And of course, he's, he's terrified now because he, the, he, these Cretans are... They, you know, they close up, they've got a reputation for yeah. being very unpleasant and he knows that they hate him. And... Um, so they drive quite near Anoya. What they don't realise whilst this is all going on is that the driver, who Lee Fermer had been promised would be also got to Anoya somehow or he would be just captured and taken off with his... Left uh, somewhere, yeah. Left somewhere. Yeah. And, and he's remember, he's been hit on the head with a lead cosh, lead and leather cosh. What they do very quickly after the car has left the kidnapped area is they cut his throat and then they cut his head off. 
Because he he they he's so sort of dazed that they can't carry him. They can't he carry can't. him, and I don't. They don't give a, a, a damn about him. You know, so they just and he's a German soldier. So what do, what what does it matter? So they cut his head off, and actually that head was is still on the island. It was kept in a box, a sort of trophy. Did you see it? No, no, it had been no. Um, Mamalakis had been helped to get it buried in the German cemetery. So it is. It had a de- decent. <laughs> And his body still lies in some deep, deep ravine on Crete. But they, they get to... Um, so they, they get to near uh, Anoia, they drop the car. Oh, uh, have the Germans realised at this stage? Not... It's impossible to tell. Mm. It's impossible to tell. The general has not disappeared yet, but he jolly well soon will, will be seen. He'll be missed, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, by dawn, they'll, they'll know. And... Um, so they, leave her, they, they all get out of the car. Lee Firma then drives it off to leave it. And they leave it, he leaves it with some British cigarettes, some commando berries and things to make it look as though it's been taken to a submarine point and abandoned and it was British troops who've done it. And they, and they walk the general to Anoya. The Mo, uh, Moss walks him to Anoya to be joined by... Later on, by Lee Fermer after he's after he's dumped to the car, and when they get to Anoya, they they get they have a very, very um, weird uh, um, welcome because the, the the villagers don't appear to like them, and they say the the cattle are amongst the sheep, the the black crows are around, and what they what they've forgotten is that they're still wearing their German uniforms, and um, so it looked to, to the Cretans, it looks as though they're Load of, load of Germans um, there. Oh, so, so the moment um, they realise who it is, then... As uh, soon as they realise it's big, all right. Big yeah, grin's all right, yeah. yeah. big grin's all right, and, and everything's all right. But um, it's, it's quite a tense mo- moment for a, little, for a little while. And, and uh, they're not able to communicate with uh, back to Cairo because they haven't got portable radios that work. So, but there are well, certain fixed radios sort of hidden away in the mountains. They've got, they've got fixed radios in the mountains, and, that, and the idea is that there will be a radio... At Anoya, and that's where the, the um, sort of communication with with Cairo and with headquarters will start. I, d- I don't know whether you're interested, but there's a just to read you as when Lee Firma leaves leaves the car, he uh, he leaves a, a letter that they've typed, and he says uh, it says we would like to point out most emphatically that this operation has been carried out without the help of the Cretans or Cretan partisans, and the only guides used were serving soldiers of His Majesty's Hellenic forces in the Middle East who came with us. Any reprisals against the local population will be wholly unwarranted and unjust. P.S. We are very sorry to have to leave this beautiful car behind. <laughs> that was that was just what they they hoped that the Germans would read that and think that um, that the, the uh, uh, that the kidnap was a, was a British initiative and no Cretans were involved. Oh yes, and the other things that the villagers say before they realise who leave from it, the back cattle have strayed into the sheep. Our in-laws have come. Our what? Um, our in-laws have come. <laughs> <laughs> see that's an international um, um, <laughs> <laughs> problem for everybody from um, uh, But the, the real problem is that the radio that's meant to be there in Hanoi isn't there, and it's with a man called Dunbarvin, and he has disappeared. So without radio contact, they're in a real fix, because how do they tell Cairo? And they start to um, use Cretan runners. In, in particular, they use a guy called... Georgia, Georgius Sycandarchus, who's called the Cretan Runner and wrote a book a, which has the title The Cretan Runner. And in it, he describes how 
very, very hard it is to to run or to carry messages over Crete. And, and at some points, they're so tired, they're, they're almost hallucinating. Right. So all the way back to the Battle of Marathon. All the way back to the Battle of Marathon, exactly. And, and they don't have shoes. You know, their shoes are, are often made out of car tyres. The, there isn't leather. You know, they're, they're, they're really up against it. Eventually, uh, Cairo is told that the... Um, that the that the, uh, the kidnappers haven't they've got the general and that they are now on the road to taking taking the general to the south coast, where they hope to be picked up by a motor launch. What they and now the Germans know that the, the, the dawn has come. The general isn't there. There's a big alert and the Germans pour out of um, Heraklion and all their other bases to search for the general. So the kidnap has ha- happened on the night of the 26th, 27th of April. What day are we now? We're in the dawn on the 27th. The general can't believe it. When they said to him, we're, we're going to drive you through Heraklion, he thought, you're mad. You, you, my, my, my men will pick me up any minute. And he's pretty stunned. And, and he's, he's wearing the clothes that he wore for a, uh, an evening in the mess in his... Um, in his headquarters, he's not dressed for mountain walking, so he's, um, you know, he's going to. He's got a very tough walk ahead of him, which he doesn't realise yet, but and he's not at all equipped for it. And, and he's uh, sort of he's close to fifty years old, and probably not. And he's close to fifty years old. He's, fit, yes, he? yes, he's, you're absolutely right. He's not, he's not he's not fit and trained up for a, for a walk that, that a young man would find difficult. And I've walked that stuff on the island. It's, it's really tough. Yes. I've ridden a motorbike. That oh, was, oh, that's that very, was very, very short. civilized. <laughs> very nice. uh, but I, you could certainly see how even even then how how you know up and down it is. And yes, how bare and barren it is. Um, so they um, they set off with the general, and several things happen. One is he develops relationships. A, he thinks the Cretans are all going to kill him any minute. He comes to hate Stanley Moss, Billy Billy Moss, and he comes to like Lee Fermer, and they and they Lee Fermer shows off by quoting Latin. And at one point, when they're on a mountain, um, Lee Firma says, Vides ut alta stet nive candidum soracte, which means the low Mount Soracte glitters deep in snow. And the general recognises this quote, and it helps to set, sort of cement their relationship, which, is, which, which I think is a sort of soldierly man-of-action relationship. Moss, on the other hand, he hates because he thinks Moss is a complete child, and even the, even at one point Moss gives him a present of a hundred. They somehow get the hundred and one nights, a thousand and one nights. That uh, that's a sort of fantasy book, and the general doesn't like that at all. And he said, he said, he, and Moss says, "Oh, I could have killed the general. He was so horrible to me." Yes, and he spends a lot of time with the general because in in the escape, Lee Fermer will will leave them together. And they absolutely don't get on. He said, I mean, what he says is, uh, he said, I liked, Kreiper said, I liked Paddy, but Moss, mm. always with his pistol, it was childish. Yes. And I think that was, that's exactly what it is. And um, actually there is it, because um, that sort of Moss is, is uh, I, I can't remember if it's in one of the Flashman books, but a right-killing gentleman. A right-killing gentleman. <laughs> you, you're that sort of person. And he does go on later on after all of this is over and, and, and kill quite a lot of Germans, doesn't he, in, a, in an ambush? Or Not only that. No, no, yes, he does exactly. He, he, having got off the island, he goes back to, to, to stage a sort of another similar 
um, ambush, and yes. that's a disaster, and it, sh- it should never happen. Yeah. And he does ridiculous things like he takes a camera with him, and yeah. you know. Which, anyway, they, so they're on the on the way. One point they're high above the snow line on Mount Ida, and they get a me- a message is brought to them saying, "For God's sake, come tonight." And what they think is happening is that the base of the mountain is surrounded by Germans. They can hear German vehicles. During the days, there are German spotter planes flying over them. There'll be dogs. And there are dogs. I mean, there's a, mm. they're, they're deploying the whole thing to capture the general. Although it is said that, um, I don't know whether this is true, but in the general's headquarters, when they heard he'd been kidnapped, they broke out the champagne. <laughs> <laughs> Got rid of that old boar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you get, they get this message, and they, so they go down the mountain not realising they're going through a German cordon. And when they finally get through, the men who meet them say, what, how, what on earth are you doing down here? We told you to stay up there. And they realise that the, letter, the message that said, for God's sake, come tonight, actually said, for God's sake, don't come tonight. And the don't had got hidden in the fold of the, whole fold of the, of the paper. Did they have to then go back through again? No, they, no, no, no. I mean, they, they, they were on the road that they were meant to be, but they just weren't meant to be on it at that, that right. moment. And... Um, and the German, the, the, the general, what he can't understand is that the, the Cretans are being so nice to the English, to the English soldiers. And he says, um, he asks one of them, he says, why, why, why are they so nice to the British? And, and, and a Cretan answers in English, saying, because the, the British are fighting for our freedom, while you Germans have deprived us of it in a barbarous way. So right. That's, that, that, that's very, very straightforward. Lee Fermer now makes what I think is a big mistake, is that he splits his force. He, he goes off looking for a radio, leaving the general. And we're in about, what, three or four days? We're three or four days hence. in, yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, and he, he, he spends... He goes with George Tirakis, the 2IC Cretan. And remember, too, that the whole time they're moving, they are being guarded from the mountaintops and the hilltops by Cretan... By the Andartes. By the Andartes, who are looking... And so... I mean, one of the SOE said that without them, we wouldn't have lasted 24 hours. I mean, in any situation. Right. So they're being guarded by the... Uh, they're being watched over. They're being run... They're riding shotgun on them. And that, because, um, again, we've talked a lot on our podcast about um, resistance in the Second World War, yes. particularly in France, um, and how much, uh, you know, betrayal was and difficulty of being able to trust people in yes. France, particularly our agents, being... being um, betrayed yes and so there was huge opportunity for them to be betrayed uh, by all sorts of characters who may have had different you know communistic leanings yes, or whatever absolutely or nationalistic leanings and yet they weren't they, they, they weren't by anyone no they weren't they weren't no they weren't betrayed at all and they passed through lots of villages and people knew who they, who they were they, I mean it's not to say there weren't double agents and collaborators on the island there were but there weren't many of them and we have to remember that Crete is a small island and that everybody knows, I mean, it's an exaggeration, but people know each other. And if, oh, X from village, what, he's the one who betrayed. I mean, there was a betrayer and his body was found slashed a bit. You know, I mean, mm. they, Cretan revenge was pretty un, uh, yeah. unforgiving. Yes. Um, and I, Mamalakis, my, my, the, the curator of the museum, said... Uh, You'd rather have brain cancer than get than get involved in a Cretan feud, and that's you know they, there's a tr- there's a strong element of trust and mutual understanding and 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 feuds just being held down. So you, yes. you know so that's so southern I think, European vendetta. Vendetta, exactly. Mm. 
Um, and they can, as they're as as they're moving around now, and as Lee Fermer's try, trying to find a radio, they can hear um, the Germans blowing places up. So, you know, in in sort of reprisal for what has happened, and as as to, as a threat to sort of get them to give the general up, and they can hear even hear German soldiers shouting, "Get on Kreiper, get on Kreiper!" And Kreiper at one point again says, "You're you're mad. You're never going to get away with this." But he's getting more and more tired, and at one point they they find a mule for him to ride on a donkey, and he falls off it and lies on the ground groaning, and that that breaks. His morale, and he falls off uh, a second time, and he just lies there, going, "Why don't you just shoot me and get it over with? I can't go on. I can't go on." I'm and he's not... injured as well, is he? He hurts his arm, yes. Yeah. And then later on, you see there are photographs of him when he's off the island with a sling on his arm. Um, there's a guy called Stockbridge on the island who, who who's who's very sort of organised, and he, Ralph Stockbridge, and he's in the inter-services liaison department, and he. Says he gets in touch with Paddy somehow and says by runner. And of course, remember these runners when they arrive, the information they're carrying is days old. And basically, he says in the letter, he says, "For God's sake, stop messing around." There's a guy called Dennis Chikritira on the island. Get in touch with him. He he's got a radio. He knows what's happening, and he'll organise a launch to get you off. And Lee Firma is then reunited. He he gets back to his um, lot, and they decide that they're going to. Um, moved to a place called Villandredo on the south coast of Crete. Whilst this is happening, the Germans are establishing patrols and watch, you know, lookout posts. Checkpoints. Checkpoints along the south coast. So the longer they take to get there, the more established those checkpoints um, will be. And they hear heartbreaking news comes to Moss that a a launch had actually arrived and had to go away again because they they weren't there. and, the, and eventually they get news from another SOE agent called Dick Barnes that they, they're, a launch will arrive on a certain day, uh, at the, the next day at Rodokino, and they have to get, they have to move very, very fast. So they, they again split the force. Some of them, the sort of younger, fitter ones, go the fast way, and the ones looking after the general go the slow way, so that uh, so the, 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 the young, fit ones will be in a sort of guarding position. In position, yeah. Um, and they and they make it. They get they, they, as they as they move along. They get to this coast. They move along the beach. They can see the the the, uh, the, uh, the you know the the, the, the guard posts. And at one point, they can see some German soldiers playing leapfrog. And the general says, "He said, I just don't know who's in charge on this island. You you are us. <laughs> He's pretty much given it up." And they so they now have to wait at Rodokino for the. Um, and this is about a fortnight later. Yes, it's yes. ten days. I think. Yeah, it's ten gosh, days, so they, they've been all that time out. I mean, it's remarkable. They didn't it's get remarkable, and you know, they've been in the rain. They've been short of food. The, 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 the general's not. You know, it's difficult. To, to, getting a fifty-year-old man who's not fit up and down those hills at night. You know, it's exhausting. Cross country at night is a, is a nightmare anyway. Anyway, they the, so we're near the end of the story. They 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 move down onto the beach, and it becomes a sort of. It, Lee Femmer said it was, a, it was a sort of like a drawing room with a party going on because there are a lot of Cretan, senior Cretan resistance people come to the beach and to say goodbye. And it's, it's, all, it's all very jolly. And they can hear a yacht, they, at the appointed hour, they can hear the deep thrumming of the, of the, of the motor launch. And the, uh, the, 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 the thing they then have to do is to signal the code words sugar baker to the motor launch, SB. 
said, Lee Fermer says to Moss, to give the signal, and Moss has got his torch, he says, well, what's the Morse for Baker? He said, I can do S for sugar. He said, but what's B for Moscow? And Lee Fermer goes, oh, I don't know. It's they really were amateurs. Right? They were complete amateurs. And at that point, the miracle of miracles, Dennis, the great figure of Dennis Chicklatira, who has got Greek, Cretan family himself, he's quite a sort of grand Englishman, but from Crete, storms out on the beach. He said, what the bloody hell are you doing? And sort of takes command, gets the torch, does flashes, you know, B for Baker, whatever the Morse flash for that is, and the launch comes in, and out of it pour highly armed members of the special boat service who are in for a fight. They want to sort of storm yeah. and kill people. And Lee Verma says, no, stop. Yeah. Everybody stop. Put down your weapons. Give them to the Cretans. Take off your shoes. Give them to the Cretans. Get back in the boat. Get back to the launch, and we'll, go, we'll all go home. This is not a time to start yeah. marauding across the island. And, and the commander of the boat is George Jellicoe. George Jellicoe. Who's the son of the of famous of admiral. The, 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 the admiral of... Um, First World War, First Battle of Jutland. Jutland. Yeah, exactly. And so they go um, on, and, and sitting at, well, as they're going to the, um, to the boat, Kripus says to um, Lee Fermi, he says, what you don't understand is that this hazard stunt of yours has ruined my career. He said, I've got, I've got children to look after. He said, I'm, they're not going to get any money now. Yeah. And but actually, it's probably the, the only thing he'll ever be remembered for. It is the, o- the only thing that he's ever remembered. And he, um, so, you know, finally, he's on, the, he's on the launch, but they're all eating lobster sandwiches, and he just can't face it and, go, and stays below decks till they get to Cairo, where he's met with great um, politeness by the British Army. He's, he, a, do- a doctor has um, strapped up his arm, and he's taken into captivity. Lee Fermer goes to hospital because the stress of the whole thing had proved... A lot, quite a lot, and he had some nervous thing that almost paralysed him. When they they debrief the general, uh, in, I think in Canada, or in London or Canada, um, they say the report on him is that he's just an, he's quite a, a, an unimportant and unimaginative man, uh, and Muller, who they were supposed to, to capture ends up on Greece uh, after the war uh, in a war crimes tribunal where, he, where he's condemned to death and Lee Fermer goes to see him and Muller says, you would, you'd never have got me like that. He said, you, I just, you just wouldn't have stood a chance if I'd been the general there. And he said, and in any case, he said, generals are two a penny. He said, he said if you capture our master baker, that's, what, that's when we'd be... The pastry <laughs> chef. The <red> pastry chef. <laughs> and just as a last time, that, that last thing, um, there were a massive... Um, repercussions and reprisals as a result of this. And very soon after the general had been captured, a leaflet were dropped by aeroplane to the villagers saying, since the abductors of General Kuiper passed through Anoya, using Anoya as a stopping place when transporting him, we order its raising to the ground and the execution of every male who is found within the village and within an area of one kilometre around it. And if you go to Anoya today, they carried that out, and, it, and, it, and it's, an, it's a very, very friendly, but still wild, westy place. And it's all, they're all brand new buildings, because they, and, they, and they've got a wonderful war um, mm. memorial in the middle. But they did it. They and did, Anoya is on the south coast, is it? Or no, Anoya is sort of southwest of, of um, Heraklion. And it's, it's the first place that, that they went to, okay. so it's, it's no. So it's no Anoya's way, where they start the journey to the south right. coast. So there was, what, about 50 civilians shot and several thousand dehoused, was that? Yes, I mean, yeah. not several thousand, but I mean, 
150 minutes. Oh, okay. it's, a, it's a small village. Oh, a tiny so village several hundred, there. yes, okay. And they were, when, I, when I went there, they were really nice to me and, and drove me around in, on, in, in a 4x4 four four and gave me lunch in, 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 the, in the plains. A, a goat, they cooked a goat for me. It was really nice. And, and, and did they talk about, because a lot of Germans go to Crete on holiday, certainly when I was there, there were, and, and do they talk about the Germans, have they sort of forgiven them, it was all the war? I don't think they've forgiven them. Mamalakis, who's my friend and the curator, he had a system on Crete that if old Germans were, were seen anywhere, the people who saw them would telephone him and he'd go and talk to them, and he, and he ended up joining some... Paratroopers Veterinary Association. I mean, he he kept. I think they're they're obviously they they welcome the Germans now, but they, they never. I don't think they've ever forgotten no. what the Germans did. Forgive, but don't forget. Forgive, but don't forget. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think if the Germans tried it again, they would they'd have a pretty hard time. But and, and and one, I suppose one of the questions you you have to ask is, was it worth it? And tactically, it was. Utterly irrelevant. It didn't made not the slightest jot to the to the war. But uh, but in propaganda terms, it was very important. And in morale terms, I mean, the Cretans say we we spoke, we thought we were two feet taller after the kidnap. Because if you're a German soldier in any bit of occupied Europe, you might think, blimey, they got the, they got a whole general off an island. But I'm 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 at risk. So it it was humiliating for the Germans and. And what you also have to remember is that D-Day hadn't happened, so nobody, nobody, everybody was in dis- in France and all the occupied Europe, Crete, Greece. People thought the Germans were there forever, so it was good to have a bit of a morale boost. And then a few months later, D-Day comes along, and the whole atmosphere changes. And they were all dished out with medals, and they uh, were given. A, I think D, I think Lee Firma got a DSO, and um, Moss got a MC. MC yeah, and yeah. MC, no, no, not to be knocked. No, it's not. No, you put that after your name. Yeah, your no, envelope. no, de- de- definitely. Um, and they all they they, they did all meet uh, again in the sixties. The, the general and Lee Firma and some of the Cretans in a studio in Athens. Oh yes, you can if you Google it. You, you can, can see, you'll it, see it. Yes. It's a very entertaining, rather shambolic. Sort of exactly, show, yes. You know, but the it, Greeks are kissing each other, or you know, it's pop. like it's but it's two two by then sort of oldish gents having a nice nice time together, reminiscing, and I suppose that's what always happens with when you do something which is very dangerous and full of adrenaline. Years later, you 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 remember it, and it gets more and more. The memory gets the the, ro- the glasses get more and more rose tinted. Yes, it? and I mean especially if it's fighter pilots or yes, uh, and the desert war was very much. Particularly, the desert war was very much soldiers versus soldiers because yes, yes. there were no people living there. So, no. so it was, in relative terms, a clean. In relative terms, yes. You know, war. I mean, just a last little thought about that is that after the war, Moss wrote a book which most people would have heard of called *Ill Met by Moonlight*, which was his version of the um, kidnap. The problem with his version of the kidnap is that it's very particular. He only knows the bits that he was involved in and I mean what I've tried to do is to write about the whole picture but that book was made into a film and the uh, general Kruiper sued Moss for defamation of character and the, the book has never been published in Germany. Really and you can I watched the film the other day it's a Paul and Pressburger so, yes. so high production for its day and it is um, some of the things you've talked about like the the greeting on the beach yes um, is very fun it's done in a very sort of amusing 
um, way, and they're all dressed up in their... He plays for more. I mean, the thing about that film is it's quite good fun. It's utter rubbish. I mean, it's not, it's, it isn't what happened. And, and Powell and Pressburger both agreed it wasn't their finest hour when they made it. And, the, and they upset the Cretans because they used Greek Cypriots as, oh. Greek, as Cretan fighters. Oh, no. So that was a sort of um, a mistake. And, of course, war is always so much worse than th- these, these fun stories. This is an extract from Rick Stroud's book, Kidnap in Crete. The bullet left the barrel travelling at 2,700 feet per second. It could smash through 33 inches of dry pine at 100 yards. It hit Yanni in his left hip at point-blank range, and his body absorbed the round's colossal force. The deafening noise of the gun firing was followed by a stunned silence. The stench of burnt cordite hung in the air. Everyone stared at Yanni, who was lying on his side by the fire, moaning. Lee Firma went slowly over to him, pulled back his friend's soaking wet cloak to reveal that the round had entered his left hip, making a clean wound with hardly any blood. Then, as somebody fetched a field dressing, they cut open his breeches and discovered that the bullet had caused terrible damage on its route round Yanni's frame. The Cretan was in deep shock and seemed to be feeling little pain. He murmured, although no one but Lee Firma could hear what he was saying. There was no doctor near and no hospital. Within a few minutes, Yanni Tangarakis was dead. His murdering cousin slept through the whole incident. Yanni's body lay in the open until dawn, when they carried him to a nearby ilex grove and buried him. Yanni Tangarakis was Paddy Lee Firma's closest Cretan friend. I mean, for instance, Lee Firma had, uh, I suppose, between the time that um, Moss turned up and his arrival, or maybe it was in a previous encounter, had had that terrible accident with his gun. Oh, that was before the whole operation, when he was on the island. And I, I think that Lee Firma was a... a, a I mean, I get my head shot off for saying this, but I think he was a hysteric... And what happened there was that they were in a village. No, they were in a hiding in the, in the forest or a cave. Yes. Uh, and there were guns everywhere. And um, it, it appeared, out, the people appeared outside saying, if you don't give us some money, we will give you away. And the Germans are coming. And everybody panicked. And Lee Firma picked up a rifle and, and he swung it. And he's in a confined space. And as he swung it, he pulled the trigger. Is it what they, I think in the army they call a negligent discharge. Yeah. And right in the line of fire was his best friend, Creason, who's lying asleep or just, just trying to wake up. And, and he fired. And later on, Lee Firma said, well, I, I, um, I was easing the... He said, I picked it up and I was easing the spring. Which to me doesn't make any sense. Because if you, if you open the breech of a rifle... You, you, you've just got to look at it. You see a shiny brass round. It's, it's mm. impossible for it not... Or the round is ejected, but... Yeah, if it's, if it's a rifle, it's hard for it to go off unless you pull the trigger. And also, it's hard to, to say, to say it, I didn't think it was loaded. Mm. And, and there was a lot of ill feeling about that. It went on after the war. And, and, and yes, so Lee Fever did kill his best friend. Yeah. So you, I, and so I think that, that neurotic, hysterical... I mean, I think they were under huge stress, these people, and PTSD was not really a thing. No. And all of us, 
if we get under pressure and we don't uh, watch out, it can end up swimming around in your head and causing you severe problems. Yes. There was one also other thing that I, I was in, I read Adam Nicholson's book, The Mighty Dead. Did you did you no, come across that? that? It was about why Homer matters and so on. Oh but, yes. And I there are lots it, of yes. stories in it. And um, one of them is the, is the he's talking about oral history, is the oral history of this event in in Crete and how Nicholson's thing is he's, he, he's, he's trying to work out whether or not oral histories change over time or whether they stay yes. the same. And he actually doesn't prove the point because he can prove both points. You know, <laughs> some of them stay yes. the same. And, so. and the oral history of this event in Crete that he listened to, there were no Brits even in the story by then. That does not surprise me. That does not surprise me because, because what I've tried to show in the book, and I, and I hope I've tried to... Um, communicate to you and to everybody is that um, the heroes of this were the Cretan people. Without the, the British were almost, they provided the equipment and they provided the, the idea, but it was the Cretans who did it and they, they were the ones that were... And they took the risk. Uh, taking the risk and they got left behind and they, it was their homes that were blown up. So the British, could, you could, if you were a Cretan, you could see the British as so sort of swanning around. And then, and so I tell you the story and I tell my grandson the story and suddenly there are no British. It is Georgius and, you know, the, the people that we know yeah. who live in these villages, etc., etc. Thank you, Rick. That was magnificent. So it goes. You've been listening to Bloody Violent History, Rick's latest book, Lonely Courage, the true story of the SOE heroines who fought to free Nazi-occupied France, is published by Simon & Schuster. Details are in the show notes. Please pass this podcast on to a friend. To help spread the word, you can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck.